Hey, this is Burke. And due to the nature of this podcast, there might be depictions of graphic violence and harsh language. So listener discretion is advised. Hey everybody. So I wasn't able to record the secondary relics episode as a bonus episode. So I'm actually going to add it to this one. Honestly, they kind of go hand in hand with building magical items and building a secondary relic. They are pretty much the same thing, though the secondary relics are probably a little bit more powerful than the just regular magical items. So let's start with what is a secondary relic or artifact. And I'm going to go ahead and give the same disclaimer from last episode. I'm not religious and I'm just going off the information that's given to me. These actually work really well for like a D&D setting or just tabletop setting. So I'm going to go ahead and use them as that and not what the religious significance are. Now, I might talk about the religious significance of the artifact as a tabletop setting, but I'm not going to go ahead and talk about it as a religious setting. I probably should have talked about this in the last episode, but what is a relic? Relics are divided into three different classes. A first class relic is a part of the body of like a saint or blood or bone or flesh of somebody. In a tabletop setting, I would maybe even add to that maybe it's an item that was used to kill a creature of great power or even just a part of a god that is attached to the weapon or item for that matter. For the second and third ones, we're actually going to merge them together for the sake of this episode. But how they're divided in reality is it's a possession that was owned by the saint or person or whatever. And a third class relic is something that's been touched by a first or second class relic. So let's go ahead and roll those sort of in together because I've kind of rolled part of the second into the first as well. The idea is we want to take from reality to make it a little bit more interesting when it comes to certain things. So for making a second class relic for a tabletop setting, maybe we have it be touched by a piece of the deity or maybe the deity has blessed it themselves. Maybe it has a piece of the deity that's attached to it, maybe a strand of hair or, but even then that could even be considered a first class relic. The reason why I'm pairing second Secondary relics and magical items together in this nature are that they are very similar. The secondary relics should be more powerful than a maxed out magical item, but it shouldn't be by very much. And the secondary relics should not even be close to as powerful as a regular relic or artifact. Sorry, I'm going to use relic probably instead of artifact more, even though I'm really meaning artifact. It's just my verbiage for this. (laughs) The idea is with these items, you want to have the damage threshold a bit higher than the magical items, maybe using a higher dice numbers for damage. Maybe it has an added feature feature as well. You also want to give it a downside as well, because I believe that artifacts should always have a downside to using them as well. Not a terrible amount of downsides, because you don't want your players associating this item as a cursed item, but you want to entice them into using it. I believe I covered that quite a bit in the last episode, so I'm not going to really rehash it here. So what plus sides do I want to give this weapon, at least feature-wise, where it stands out over a just base magical item? Well, we want to give it certain perks to using it, right? We want to have like hidden features in there. We want to have like, okay, the weapon gives you increased AC when you're equipped with the weapon. You're not necessarily going to get that with a regular magical item. 
you're going to want to give it spells, but maybe to a lesser degree. Maybe you want to give it special abilities, a level of sentience that a regular magical item doesn't have. Now, we talked briefly about how to acquire these things, and so let's go ahead and sit down and talk about it. For this one, I'm actually going to set it in a modern day setting. And for this one, we're going to set it in Nepal. Let's say your team has been sent to Nepal to investigate strange disappearances, strange murders, eviscerated bodies, and they come across this creature that you find out can't actually be killed with the weapons that you have. They seem to actually do no damage. Even some of your team have been taken out by this creature. You find it strange because you have blessed weapons as well, and they should do damage. They've done damage in the past to various supernatural creatures, but why are they not working here? They go to a holy person to figure out what they need to actually do to take out this supernatural creature. The holy person recommends that they go to a small village monastery northeast of Nepal. The monks up there have a relic of great power that they should be able to bless their weapons with. They climb up the mountain and eventually make it to the monastery. And they find that the relic is actually a Yeti scalp. They're able to get permission to make contact with their weapons to the Yeti scalp, blessing the weapons. Not all relics come from the same place. The Yeti scalp I am talking about here is actually a thing that is in Nepal. Now for a fantasy setting, you could easily replace the Yeti scalp with like a sarcophagus or something of great power, like just going to this place of great power. You go to this hidden temple inside the volcano where the locals worship the great deity of fire for their world. Your party presses their weapons against the relic or sarcophagus or just great crystal. Thing of power is what I'm kind of getting at. This is very synonymous with whatever you want it to be. It could be a bone. It could be just about anything. And this would grant a weapon, whether it would be magical or not, immense power. Setting things like this up in your game actually make interesting quests because then makes your players want to go, oh, well, I want that power. At least I want access to that power. And yes, it derails you from your main campaign ideas. But when you're running a long-term campaign, these little derailments are enjoyable for your players. Getting away from the main storyline isn't necessarily a bad thing. It allows for the players to see more of your world and it gives you you had an opportunity to do some more world building. Now, with that out of the way, it's time we actually talk about something that I probably should have talked about at the front of this episode and basically the last episode as well. You should only build what you're comfortable having in your game. Trust me, this is something I learned the hard way in my first campaign I ever ran because I accidentally built probably one of the top five most dangerous weapons I have ever built for a campaign. And honestly, it's a lesson that everybody kind of has to go through, especially when you're building and homebrewing just about everything in your game. See, I didn't have a list of Pathfinder stuff. Like I didn't have any of the books back in the day. I only had like one or two enough to get by and build the campaign. And I was using wikis to make it work. From my start of that campaign, my players woke up in a maze. It had a lot of scary stuff and there was multiple exits to this maze. One was in the middle, one was out of sewers, and then there was another Another one that spit out in a different part of the area. It was an offshoot of a Curse of Strahd game, which was kind of changed. The bad guy I had for the exit by the sewers was actually a Hydra. Knowing my players were low level and wouldn't have access to certain things, I hid a magical item in the bottom of that gross little pond or little swamp thing that was in the sewers that kind of leaked out into the maze itself. So I decided to make a item that would help them with the fight as long as they found it. At the time they had a sorcerer, so they did have access to fire spells, but at the same time, they needed some more. The name of the weapon was called Vengeance. Now there's some very important things I need to talk about this weapon. For starters, it was a a scimitar. Now it's been a long time since I've run Pathfinder, 
but the base scimitar has an 18 to 20 critical, which is the important part. That meaning if you roll an 18 or a 20, it's a crit. 18 through 20, it's a crit. And it's a time two, times two slashing damage. I decided to give the weapon keen because I had been given keen weapons in the past and it seemed like a lot more fun for the players. That was my biggest mistake. So what keen did is it lowered the crit range of the scimitar to 15 through 20. Now you can see where this dead weapon is now very dangerous, right? Especially in the hands of a fighter who was having upwards of eight attacks towards the end of the campaign. Now the weapon only had an additional 2d6 fire damage, but that was really all that was with the weapon. So when I was designing the weapon, I didn't really think about it too much. However, hindsight is always 20-20. So my fighter instantly picked up the weapon, instantly turned it on, and he decided he was going to build around this weapon. Now this weapon that shouldn't been anything remarkable was a game changer because he ended up taking feats like improved critical, which doubled it again. So that bring, so it brought down the critical range to 12 through 20. Anybody who's run a campaign now understands how dangerous that is because he is hitting most of the time and it's always a crit pretty much when he hits. Like he was, there was just no way he could miss basically with this weapon unless he was rolling very low. There were times where there was combat and he would crit every time he used his main hand. Not to mention, since his offhand was also now a scimitar, it also had a lower crit range because it improved critical. So his main hand was critting on 12 and above and his offhand was critting on 15 and above. Now you can see what I mean when I mentioned that this weapon was incredibly dangerous. And me as a new DM, I didn't know how to deal with it. I contemplated taking the weapon away or even nerfing it. That is actually not the right thing to do. How I adapted to it was I ended up giving the players each weapons that were almost of the same power rating. I gave the things a lot more hit points. We ended up doing mythic adventures so everything had a ton of health and my fighter could get away with doing 400 500 damage around and it felt okay when you accidentally put something in your game that is very scary and very powerful it helps to maybe talk with your players and this is how i would handle it now if i accidentally gave a weapon of just way too much power and maybe talk to them and we'd maybe discuss how i wanted to handle this if the player was okay with me dropping the power level down a little bit or if they weren't okay with it maybe then i need to figure out okay well well, let's go ahead and buff everybody else so everybody has a similar power level because we can always add more health to make this not as scary because if the part if the one player in the group is one-shotting whatever you're putting out in front of them that's not fun for everybody else the idea there is okay let's make this just a very power heavy game and there's going to be big numbers because that's a power heavy game and your players are going to love the big numbers a lot of them do all right that all out of the way let's build these magical items now the great thing is there is a huge table with a ton of magical items. And a lot of times you're not gonna have to build your own unless you really want to. And a lot of times these are gonna be plus one weapons and giving players access to plus one weapons is actually not a bad thing. As long as your game actually makes sense for having that kind of weapon. But it goes more than just building magical weapons. There's those other magical items, there's magical armor. Maybe you wanna build a shield that reflects all damage shot at it once per day, once or twice per day. That makes a real fun thing for let's say a paladin who's in the face 
of a dragon that's using its breath attack. So they use their ability to shoot the breath attack right back at them. Maybe you change the damage type. I don't think there's actually a thing in the Dungeons Master's Guide that's even like that. Give it an additional AC bonus that it wouldn't have if it was just a regular magical item. Maybe even give it where if you use that ability, a portion of 25% of the damage dealt to the shield is returned to you as health. That's actually really powerful. That'd probably be on the higher end of the skill. That'd be definitely a plus three weapon. It could even be considered a lesser artifact. Maybe you're running an underwater campaign and having, let's say, rebreathers that are just magical items that help your characters breathe underwater. That helps a ton too. Maybe you want to have extra storage. Maybe you have like a badge of office that also functions as a portable storage. Maybe you have a button like Jaraxxle does that you have a button on your coat that is a bag of holding. Maybe you have a feather that sits in one of your caps and you, as soon as you pull it out and crack it, maybe it summons a griffin that when it leaves, when you're done with it, it drops another feather, but it can only be summoned once per day. That's an interesting magical item. The idea is when we're building these ones for our specific games, let's do it so it has a little bit more flavor for whatever reason you need it to have it. Like if you have a different kind of campaign, it's okay to build your own magical items. You don't necessarily have to though. There's plenty of magical items in all of the books, which you can find online for the most part. We don't have to reinvent the wheel every time, but at the same time, it's okay for us to do this. The difference from artifacts in just regular high-end magical items, and even the low-end ones, don't give them downsides. I'm serious, don't. Because if you build them correctly, the regular magical items won't have as much power as the artifacts, so you don't need to give them downsides to offset them. If you do, that's when we lean more into cursed items. At least the low-end ones but we'll talk about that next episode all right i just finished uh editing and yes if my voice sounds different it's because i'm recording this on a different day and i worked 11 hours today so i'm exhausted sorry for this episode coming out a little late i just wanted to make sure i got it out tonight before tuesday because i just wanted to make sure that i am at least doing my part to make sure it's somewhat on time if you enjoyed this episode you can let me know on twitter at burkhart gaming as a reminder we have a discord you can find it as well as all the socials in my show description below i'm not sure when the next episode of the talor campaign is going to be i do know it's sometime in September. Now, real talk about the Teller campaign. If you're trying to avoid spoilers for it, I suggest maybe cutting it here. Thanks for listening if you are. So, all right. Now that it's safe to talk about it. So my character Raymond died last episode and we had a little bit of a discussion with the other players about that. They're just, they're just going to bring Ray back. I, on the other hand, am going to leave it up to chance. I know a little peek behind the curtain because I'm playing a changeling and generally it's a race that's feared by other people because you can ruin people's lives. Like it's a monstrous race almost. The chances of Mordecai taking me to a temple to get me resurrected and them actually doing it is probably pretty low. So I went ahead and actually made a backup character. I still need to submit it to um, Jin to make sure he's even willing to run with that character. If not, I have an idea of something else I can build as well. Part of me actually hopes that Ray will get resurrected and I can continue with kind of the plans and schemes I had. But part of me as like the dungeon master who likes to play different characters, likes the idea of playing a different character. Not to mention I'm kind of of the camp where player death is actually kind of an important thing to happen. It's usually a turning point for most groups. Especially at level three, I don't necessarily feel like it should be accessible for a third level party to resurrect a third level player. Jin, I'm not calling you out or anything. You are actually doing a fantastic job. This is just kind of my opinion with this. 
And maybe if Ray is able to be resurrected, there needs to be like a huge catch attached to it. It needs to be more than just money. All right, it's enough rambling about Ray's death. And one of the last things I kind of want to talk about is I might be putting the bonus content on a shelf for right now. If you can't tell by my voice and how lately I've been talking about how much overtime I've been working, I just don't really have a whole lot of time right now. Unfortunately, we're super understaffed and me leaving isn't gonna really help them with their problems, but they're working me to death right now, so they'll have to figure it out themselves. I'm hoping to move in October, which kind of sucks because I usually do spooky season, which I don't know how I'm gonna do that now figure that out when the time comes sorry about all the life updates i try to keep this stuff pretty condensed at the end of the episodes but i figured it was important to at least fill everybody in but thank you for making it to the end of the episode and i'll catch you on the next one